Welcome once again into the Radiopedia reading room and welcome to 2024, the radiological year of the GOAT. My name <laughs> is Andrew Dixon and joining me, excited to share his New Year spatial resolutions with us all, it's my co-host, Frank Gaylor. I don't do New Year's resolutions, Dixon. A whole year oh. is way too long and I'm easily distracted. I focus <laughs> on much shorter time period like for today. My daily resolution is don't have a black Manhattan before 6 p.m. <laughs> and it's not looking great. <laughs> oh, gosh. Do you have any resolutions this year? More wishes than resolutions. Resolutions <laughs> take work. I just want the benefits. <laughs> no, actually, I, I want to focus on supporting my daughter to develop her cricket skills in 2024 okay. and her love of cricket. She's doing amazingly well, and so I want to keep supporting that. And I uh, also want to try and assist my wife to find more space and time to work on her own creative projects rather than my podcast. <laughs> happy wife, happy life, as they say. Indeed. Do we need a, a podcast resolution? Get better at podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weekly resolution. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I've just checked and 2027 will be the year of the goat. 2024 mm. is actually the year of the dragon. So I just made up stuff in the intro. Yes, my, uh, I could have told you that. My youngest son is a dragon. And for this entire millennium, if you're good at your 12 times table, it's really mm -hmm. easy to know when it's the year of the dragon because it's just multiples of 12. So 12, 24, 36, 48, mm. etc. So you've got a Swiss passport. We learned recently Italian heritage and now you're claiming some kind of Chinese heritage as Only well? Only by marriage. <laughs> only by marriage. And Natalie only claims it genetically because she's as Aussie as they come. Doesn't speak a word of Chinese, no. doesn't read it, doesn't doesn't even like rice. She actively <laughs> dislikes rice. <laughs> but don't forget, in addition to the 12 Chinese zodiac, there are five elements as well. Oh, okay. Wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. Each two years has the same element. So it goes wood, rabbit, wood horse, and then earth, duck, earth, snake, etc. right? So it goes around every 60 years. Okay. So this year is wooden dragon, and in 2025, it's wooden snake. And then mm -hmm. it changes so that in 2026, it's fire horse, and that means that 2027 is fire goat. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. There's a good merchandise idea, Gaylord. Oh, yes. Fire goat. Cap. Definitely. That would be good. <laughs> anyway, I did say New Year spatial resolution deliberately in the intro. Oh. And that's because today we're going to listen to a CT technology discussion recorded at Radiopedia 2023 back in July, uh, hosted by Andrew Murphy and featuring radiologist Ben Hudson and imaging physicist Professor Tim Stick. Uh, they'll chat about things like dual energy CT, photon counting CT, and how not to get sucked into spending millions of dollars by vendors. <laughs> oh, that's going to be interesting. I was reading an article or something recently about how marketing changes during the life cycle of a specific technology mm -hmm. and how initially it's all about the features. So if you think of phones, you should buy the new iPhone because it has better battery life or screen size or better colors or memory or weight or, or camera specs. But then when everyone reaches the level where improving those things doesn't really help, which mm. I think you can argue we're kind of there, it pivots to marketing on the basis of how 
makes you feel and the kind of social signals that you're giving mm. out. So you get uh, endorsements by celebrities, you get different colors, you might get different materials. And I wonder if we're going to get that with CT and MR, that yeah. all the marketing will focus on what color your CT yeah, yeah, scanner yeah. is. And and this one is the Bono U2 limited edition Siemens <laughs> scanner. Like wearing a fancy watch, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I won't hear a word against LED strips. So I reckon every scanner should come with a purple radiopedia glow that it casts in the room. <laughs> oh, I've got purple LEDs under my bed at home. Of course you have. <laughs> <laughs> it goes with your purple radiopedia jammies. Yeah, that's right. Now, just quickly before we get into the main segment today, I want to mention that registrations are now officially open for Radiopedia 2024. That's our five-day virtual conference taking place from July 22 to 26. Uh, the full lecture lineup has been announced, workshops, etc. So please do go and check that out. Get registered. It's it's going to be amazing. Don't forget also the R poster abstract submissions are open as well. Mm. So it's your chance to use a bunch of cases from the website and create an educational poster, get it published at the conference. You get a certificate, a DOI, a digital object identifier, if you care about these things and mm, everything. It looks fantastic on a CV. Every, you get everything indeed, including a fire goat cap maybe to the author <laughs> of the Fire goat poster. PJs, purple <laughs> PJs with fire goats. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the main segment now. So a CT technology update with Andrew Murphy, Ben Hudson and Tim Stick. We'll listen in and then Frank and I resolve to be back for another chat in the outro. <laughs> See what I did there? Resolve. Very clever. Very clever. <laughs> Hi and welcome to our extended CT panel where we're going to talk everything CT. My name's Andrew Murphy. I'm a radiographer in Brisbane, Australia. And here with us today, we have Dr. Ben Hudson, who is a consultant radiologist at the Royal United Hospitals in Bath in the United Kingdom. And we also have Associate Professor Kim Stick, medical physicist at the University of Wisconsin. Ben and I, Tim, have been doing our homework and we've been perusing your textbook to prepare for this today. And uh, Ben, I've been reading a lot about cardiac imaging to make sure that I don't make a fool of myself in front of a consultant radiologist who reads cardiac scans all day. <laughs> the, the main thing that a lot of people are interested in with CT at the moment is, is dual energy scanning. Every vendor is offering some shape or form of dual energy CT, and they're really sprucing the clinical applications and how it's going to change clinical practice. And it has been around for quite a while now. Um, ben, I'll start with you. Are you using it locally at your practice? Yeah, so we, we've been using it for, for a few years. Some sort of limited applications. So we do uh, dual energy for pulmonary angiography for certain patients, but not all patients. And uh, we do some bone marrow edema imaging uh, for trauma patients, some gout imaging. So some applications, but we we don't use it across the board. It's quite a select thing that we do and uh, with different types of scanners and do them in different ways. Um, but yeah, not sort of across the board. Maybe slightly ahead of the curve locally, but uh, maybe quite different to some bigger centers or those with a lot more experience. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because that... Um... One of the, the centers I work at in Brisbane, Dual Energy, seems to really dominate the scanning protocols. 
with anything, there's an element of it's driven by there's a potential for research in the future. And then there's the element of it could have a clinical value. We definitely use it a lot for our CTPAs and it, it tends to be the, the favorable scan with the iodine maps and things like that. Do you find the, the bone marrow maps in trauma useful at all, Tim? Do you, do you have much experience in the bone marrow stuff? I know some of our radiation oncology folks have looked at that for looking at radiation damage or, or you know, where, where to avoid and try to save in the bone, but we don't use that in diagnostic radiology currently for the yeah, bone marrow. Most of our uses are simply for uh, better uh, conspicuity for like low, like small enhancing lesions, say. So we're mostly utilizing like lower KEV images or iodine maps. And then the, that's in the body. And in the head, we have one protocol that's pretty popular for the patients post um, neurosurgery um, for stent removal to look at blood staining in the head. That That's our, our main application there. We've tried for pulmonary embolism for PE, but I think we like the speed that you can get with single energy better. Usually with most any dual energy mode by most any vendor's technology, you have to go uh, a little bit slower. Um, so we like the single energy mm. for its speed there. We definitely see the use of those virtual non-contrast heads post endovascular clot retrieval for contrast staining. That t- that tends to be our our mainstay dual energy application that is asked for if it doesn't automate once it's sent. And it tends to be the thing that's like clinically utilized. Tim, could you briefly explain to us the difference between say I had a dual source scanner or I have a a spectral scanner where uh, dual energy is always on because that tends to be a point of confusion a lot when people are kind of shopping for CT scanners. Yeah. So I don't go in much for the vendor uh, trade, like trademark names and things. I think at the end of the day, you know, so we don't get confused as people actually using this technology whether we're physicists or radiologists or radiographers, there's nothing magic to one solution or the other. In the dual energy space, so if we're not talking about photon counting, every vendor that's implementing dual energy, and some of them may call it spectral imaging, they're really just acquiring two different effective energy data sets of the same part of of our patient. So whether they're doing that with a dual source where they've got one tube acquiring one energy and another tube acquiring another energy, whether they're doing that by quickly switching between low and high energy beams, or whether they're doing that with a detector which has two different layers, one sensitive to one energy and one sensitive to the other, or uh, there's another solution that the vendors, uh, one vendor has where they have one beam, one tube, but they have a bowtie filter that has different Uh, filtration on either side and that changes the effective energy and then i hope i'm not leaving anybody out i think the last solution that's been used is just to simply have a rotate rotate solution where you have do a scan at one energy Mm -hmm. and then you do a scan at another energy so every single one of those approaches i just mentioned in, in in my mind is is a spectral solution or is a dual energy solution i wouldn't get lost in a vendor somehow saying they're spectral and that's better or different, they're all acquiring two different effective energy 
data sets. People using this technology on real patients, important questions to ask the vendor are how fast can you scan? How long of a scan range at a high dose can you scan? Those are two important questions because these various technologies, some of them are pretty slow scanning. Uh, some of them require very high tube currents, which which could mean you, you can't do a three-phase abdomen, for example, or you may not be able to do a dual-energy delayed phase on the third phase of a torso exam, etc. That's certainly something we find. Um, we use um, dual-source CT for our dual-energy, and one of the, uh, the disadvantages there is the, is the field of view. So if you're doing a, a CTPA dual-energy in a, a large patient, he might not even actually be able to see all of the pulmonary arteries or the periphery of the lungs. So like Tim says, there's a, there's a payoff for all the different types of setups for dual energy. We always talk about like, a, what's the killer app for some new enabling, you know, technology? What does it enable me? You know, I think it's undoubtedly so that dual energy has enabled better uh, gout, you know, and, or uh, kidney stone, you know, quantification. And that's actually pretty good because most any dual energy or spectral technique you don't need like super high speed for those types of quantification yeah. tasks. So if you really thought it was worth spending the extra million or however much, you know, dollars, whatever your currency is on that technology to have the one or two killer apps that Dual Energy can enable, then I guess speed isn't as much of a important factor for, for those. Yeah, I was just a general point really about what Tim was saying about vendors selling their hardware which is their job but you do get a bit caught in the headlights sometimes when you you, you get shown these uh, scanners all these great specifications and look what it can do but it's that real life clinical application that that's the reality isn't it you know you, you got to get away from the table with all the merchandise and the the really nice um yeah. you know, reference site visits and and really have a look at how it works in in real life and with real life patients you know and we're seeing a increased number of patients with higher BMIs and stuff like that. Yeah, difficult, challenging scenarios and with which to scan, and and not just the picture that's up on the on the lecture screen. And, and it's just it all looks magical. It's great. We find that the reality is quite different. You know, that's I guess that's life, isn't it? But yeah, if it were me or a loved one, and I wanted to go to the hospital, I think I would like you know the, my lead CT tech I work with every day, and with my favorite radiologist on an old you know. <laughs> 10 years, 15 year old uh, state of the art CT scanner that everyone knew had a really good workflow for. Um, maybe outside of like a cardiac application where I probably would want one of those expensive new premium scanners from today. So uh, I guess, Ben, you're a cardiac radiologist, so you can still have an argument for the fancy toys. But for most of the what I'd call bread and butter routine imaging, I mean, the spatial resolution and temporal resolution and scan speeds that we've been enjoying for almost, you know, two full decades, like they would be adequate, in, in my opinion, for most of those bread and butter applications. For me, there's a, there's a massive fear of missing out whenever you're looking <laughs> at a new CT scanner and the number of CT scanners is a little bit like the number of bikes you need or like cans of beer you need, if that's your thing. Like it's N plus one, you know, where N is the number of CT scanners you currently have. You know, in the UK, we really do thrash our machines and we need 
the, the option to be able to flip between uh, you know, lots of different indications, lots of different types of scan, acute patients, elective patients. So that's the way I try and justify a lot of this stuff is if you, if you want, you need that flexibility, try and get the best scanner that you can for what you're going to use it for. And dual energy is just, for us, is just on the sort of, it's like always just on the horizon. It's an extra step, which it definitely has its applications, uh, but getting the opportunity to, to use it with like validated evidence. So we talked about CTPA. The European guidance for dual energy CT for CT polymerandrography is it basically says, well, think about it, but the the, the evidence isn't there to validate its use constantly. Uh, and so v, VQ is actually used is in the guidance for that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's certainly an area where it gives you that sort of one-stop shop availability of doing the, the, the polymerandrography uh, and looking at the perfusion maps at the same time. Uh, but with all the caveats that you, that you guys have mentioned already around speed of the scan these patients are intrinsically probably a little bit breathless and maybe larger patients you know depending on what the reason they're having the scan i was going to say one thing we haven't talked about with dual energy is kind of if you go to outside of academic radiology right go to the real world and you talk to a radiologist what i always hear is you know they're like this is like mr now right because you've got all these extra image series so i think you know one way i kind of look at is the real value from dual energy Sites that can really realize the value are a lot of times academic radiology centers where they've got a huge team of people that can invest a ton of time tweaking the protocols, figuring out exactly what image types they want on a vendor model specific type basis sometimes for each indication, of course, and then build those protocols and run that workflow, train their radiographers or, you know, their technologists on how to scan it. And that's not reality for, you know, a lot of folks. So I think people trying to get into the dual energy game now that that don't think they need like all of those resources and effort, I think they're not going to see value. They might actually see negative value because they're actually complicating a lot of people's workflows in life if those people aren't given the right resources. So I'm sounding a little pessimistic maybe today about dual energy. I think there is gains in the right hands, but it's not a perfect fit for for every imaging uh, practice culture. It, it's, it's worth noting that a lot of the research on this, it's retrospective studies that are published in high-tier journals and it gets people very excited. Um, but we could talk about this for another half an hour if we wanted to, but we'll move, <laughs> we'll move on to CT protocols and cardiac imaging because that tends to be quite a challenging aspect of, of any CT department. You get new radiographers or experienced radiographers they all can kind of do things like your chest, abdomen, pelvises, your oncology patients, and even most trauma scans aren't really technically difficult until you start looking for very specific, you know, aortic pathology plus minus a pulmonary embolism or something like that. Cardiac imaging tends to be the sticking point. So whenever you go to like a new workplace and there's a cardiac imaging portion of your CT training, even if you've done it before, you are really just starting again because every ct scanner every radiologist has a different preference now tim you've made a lot of ct protocols and shipped them out to thousands of centers around the world do you find that you have to make specific changes to your ct protocols based on radiologist preferences or are you finding there's starting to be a trend more to retrospective scanning rather than this prospective scanning's from our experience at our institution, we do have a lot of gated protocols 
uh, with mm. very specific targets for different cardiac phases, and then some multi-phase uh, protocols to look at different anomalies, you know, and sometimes, you know, different contrast injection schemes, and sometimes in some non-gated, you know, phases through the heart and through some of the rest of the descending aorta. So at our center, yes, I find that's the practice. And I think from my experience at other sites outside of, of our institution, I think that is common if you're getting indications for device uh, planning, uh, then you probably know what you're doing and you probably have really tailored protocols. I, I don't see, at least in the U.S., in the sites I have experience with, someone out in the rural place with like one or two scanners doing some sort of, you know, elephant gun type protocol where they're collecting like whole beat, multi-contrast phase cardiac protocols. That's just not common because of the nature of cardiac uh, interventions. You're going to mm. have to go to the mothership type health center in your region and they're going to have usually then tailored protocols for for cardiac. How, how about you, Ben? We supervise all our scans, actually. So we've got a, a radiologist there the whole time that the cardiac CTs are happening. So we work with our radiographers. And my practice is quite sort of bespoke. I'm, I'm looking at the patient, looking at the ECG, and, and looking at the question. For me, cardiac CT is a little bit like uh, an annoying relative. Like I've got unconditional love for for cardiac ct but i am often disappointed so it, it's about using the protocols uh, on a bespoke level to try and get the best uh, out of the situation and obviously you don't know what you're faced with until until you're there you were mentioning sort of retrospective stuff murph almost never use retrospective studies unless there's a contraindication to uh, cardiac MR, you want to get some volume analysis or something like that, and you need the whole cardiac yeah. cycle. So perspective for nearly everything, try and get the heart rate down as, as best we can. Diastolic imaging, if it's really low, we've got dual source CT, so we try and use that uh, ultra high pitch mode uh, if if possible. And then we use a lot of systolic imaging, actually, so irregular rates or, or high heart rates over 65 we do a bit of stuff around um, aortic valve intervention. Uh, Tim, Tim mentioned that kind of stuff. There are lots of options, and I think a lot of that is about your sort of apps team and what your tertiary centre is actually looking for, what they're willing to accept as well. Yeah. So we do we do something fairly fairly basic from that point of view, uh, respective imaging of, of the root and stuff, and then uh, we do an ultra high pitch of the rest of the body. So. I think a lot of it's tailoring the stuff to your practice, to your, to your patient and stuff, and, and trying to work around the pitfalls of, of cardiac imaging in general. I'm just curious, Ben, what your thoughts are. I think one, one issue uh, that we've dealt with and are always probably will deal with is communication. As a physician, I'm sure you know, you know what's the best phase for a given indication, right? And that, that may change depending on like that, how that patient presents day of with their heart rate or their variability. And I think this is one place where we're constantly making sure we have memos going out and we have documentation in our protocols for on this specific CT scanner, for this indication, if the heart rate's in this bounds or has this variability, you need to use this bell and whistle option on that piece of equipment. And then even if this happens during the scan, you might need to do this you know, play around with the cardiac trigger, you know, the windows to get the radiologist what they want. 
I would say it's probably the most complicated workflow for having a mapping between one clinical indication and what the radiographer or the technologist is actually going to do at scan time. And I guess if anyone is listening to us talk today, that would be my biggest recommendation is if you naively believe that you have one state-of-the-art CT scanner, you know, it's, it's not like some magic thing that's just going to automatically always adjust perfectly to every indication in uh, you know patient presentation. You really need to understand the technology with the apps people and then talk radio- radiographer, uh, maybe your physicist or technical person, usually probably a vendor apps, and then obviously the physician or the diagnostic uh, cardiologist to understand you know how to get the most out of that piece of equipment. Absolutely right, Tim. And you've got those sort of four variables, haven't you? You've got the the patient, you know, the heart rate, how they're made, how much calcification they've got, that kind of stuff. You've got the machine, which you can't really change once you're there, but having that sort of intimate knowledge of what your machine is capable of, that takes time, that takes experience uh, with the team working with that machine. And and that goes back to what we said about, you know, how, how the machine sold as this bells and whistles thing. It's not the reality, so you've got to get used to what the parameters are. And then you've got the radiographer, massively important. They you know, know how the protocols work, how, how the machine performs, uh, and following those protocols. And then you've got the most complicated bit, which is the radiologist, who's who's never happy and may or may not be present. We're always present in the next room. But in terms of communication, Tim, what they do in our hospital is... Uh, they either shout around the corner and say, come and look at this. Are you happy with the heart rate? There's loads of calcium. Uh, this isn't right. Or they, they bang on the wall. And and it's like, it's a Pavlovian conditioning. You hear this knock and then you, you go running around. And that mm, all comes the back to... bang on the wall trick. It's fine in Bath. We're, all, we're well trained. But it goes back to that uh, cardiac imaging being one of those uh, types of exam where you can't just be removed from the process or you will be disappointed. And are you willing to let the patient go from the scanner with a non-diagnostic study? Or are there things that you can do to optimize before you scan? Or do you need to change tack? Or you look at the scan and you go, well, actually, we need to do something in a different way. From that side, it's really one of the most for me anyway, and I'm clearly biased, the most interactive types of scans that you can acquire with CT. And uh, and, it, and it depends on the, the whole team, all the, on all those variables, the radiographer, uh, radiologist, physicist as well, obviously, uh, in setting a lot of this stuff up, and then the, the machine and the patient as well. And it's like you've got to just get all these things, all the stars aligned. And it's amazing how often that does happen. Uh, but similarly, Sometimes it doesn't work so well. So you're just working your way around those things. I think what makes a huge difference with cardiac scans, which are arguably one of the harder scans that you can do on a CT scanner, and a lot of CT scans is that if you have a team of radiologists who who buy into the radiographer's professional development and actually explain to the radiographer's why they want to see something and why it matters to the patient and why it matters to the diagnosis, it goes like a really long way because instead of having a radiographer who just remembers that you go into systole when the heart rate gets higher, 
if you explain to them why you're doing that, the ECG gating and how when you go into a higher heart rate, the diastole starts to shrink. If you can explain all that to a radiographer and show them that you trust them to understand what you're saying, it, it tends to make a better a better team where you have buy-in and everyone's kind of on the same level. So I, I've worked in a lot of departments in Australia, in Canada, in both pediatrics and adults. And the biggest difference I saw in departments where they were like, just press the button, get it done, we'll figure it out later. And the departments where the radiographers knew exactly what they were doing and why, it, it was huge. Like you get really high quality scans and really passionate radiographers who aren't just saying, hey, can you look at this scan? They're saying the RCA looks kind of blurry on, on this scan and I think we need to repeat it, but I thought I'd give you a call. That helps a lot with this stuff because I think the radiologist just assumes that we just know how to use the scanner and, and we do, that's what we're trained to do, but th there is that extra level of like, hey, why don't you come to our teaching at lunchtime and we'll do a session every month where we just go through these type of scans and we'll explain to you why we want to see it this way. Like it, it helps a lot to do that. That professional development's massively important and getting familiar with the scanner that you have with cardiac imaging in general for radiographers or techs is, is huge. And it's, it's certainly, yeah, it'll be different in different parts of the world, I'm sure, but in the UK trying to get as many patients through the scanner as possible, getting through backlogs and forgetting that quality is really important. Quantity is, you know, is important, but getting the right scan, not having to do another test down the line because you didn't take the time with the radiographer to train them properly, uh, for them to go uh, to different hospital sites, to go to the vendors, to go to cardiac imaging conferences and understand what they're doing rather than, as you said, Murph, just hitting the button and, and hoping everything's going to be okay. That, that's a massive, massive part of this puzzle. Yeah, I will say that, um, well, first, Murph, when you said that the radi radiologists assume that the radiographers know how the scanner works, I, I had to chuckle a little bit inside because, honestly, with the with modern scanners, I, I think they're getting so smart and they're actually, you know, I think in some ways I've seen them make the workflow better because they can do a lot more adaption to patients heart rate and heart rate variability however with that comes a level of complication and uh, that uh, or complexity rather where i've we've had we three major oems of course i won't mention by name where i've asked questions about like you know different parts of that type of a workflow for smart kind of cardiac and you get multiple responses at different levels of apps and engineering support where they're not exactly sure how it's going to work. So I think we're, in my experience, we've gone a long way from the technologist having pre-built protocols for various heart rate bands, right? Or various different types of variability that are kind of pre-built to, to help the technologist or, or we've come a long way from having the techs make those adjustments on the fly to places where some of the scanners in my fleet a really wide range of heart rates and variabilities the scanner will automatically adapt to and the radiographer doesn't have to like make any of those decisions so that that's that's really cool to see i think there's still like some kinks from any vendor i've seen's product but it's better than where we were a while ago um but they're still yeah pretty pretty complicated that's all I don't know if you guys have experience with any of those systems it's the ai thing isn't it it's like the automation is pretty good but you still need to know 
how it got to that result so you can correct if it's getting to the wrong results right like it's it, it tends yeah. to be how i've found like even with the better scanners like a perfusion map on a on a stroke patient works 99 percent of the time but when it doesn't work you need to figure out exactly why it's not working and how to go into the back end and change you know reference vessels or from max slope to, to some other type of uh, calculation so yeah, I guess it's the choice you have to make as a radiographer and as a site as to how much you educate y your staff. And I, I've had the similar issues where I've contacted certain vendors to ask them about very simple things like what do the colors mean on these <laughs> on these maps? And they will actually say commercial confidence, can't tell you, sorry. It's just one of those things, which is, it, it, it is what it is. But um, yeah, it, it tends to be the environment that we're in where we're trying to get information and they say, yeah, we'll give you a white paper for it and you go, great. And then the white paper you get doesn't make any sense and it's all proprietary technology that they can't discuss. And you feel like you're slowly getting yeah. stupider. So I think there is no better place to end this discussion than on photon counting because it would be a miss of us not to talk about the thing that every CT vendor is talking about at the moment. Tim, I know you have a few opinions on this. So we'll, we'll start with you. What's your take on this new CT technology that seems to be coming out quite quickly? Undoubtedly, there's definitely gains in the high contrast spatial resolution. So things like MSK imaging, temporal bone imaging, probably any kind of bone imaging, uh, probably some uh, lung uh, imaging um, for ben, for Ben, you know, in the in the hearts, probably getting like less uh, blooming from calcium, and uh, maybe that'll translate into more accurate FFR things for you, Ben. I don't know, but. Those types of applications, I think, just due to the nature of the smaller detector pixels, I think we're going to see some... Well, I know we're going to see better spatial resolution. It remains to see how that will actually impact patient care. If we can see things we couldn't see before, if we can see things at earlier stages, or just characterize things that we see today, but they have to be three times bigger, and now we can see them when they're, when they're smaller earlier in the disease progression or, or so forth. So... That's probably the most exciting thing, actually. For the so everyone, anyone that's listening, so they understand why the scan happened. Well, because like in photon counting, you're literally counting each photon, so you have to like count on the level of each like few nanoseconds. You're counting a photon, whereas in energy integrating, you're counting over a millisecond. So it's a huge difference in time. So because it's a really hard job to count that much, what the vendors did was they realized if they made their detector smaller and smaller they would see fewer photons, so they'd have an easier job counting them. So that's honestly, like in a nutshell, why we have smaller detector pixels today is because of these issues with being, with, with, it was really hard to count a lot of photons. So anyway, but back to the other, the other half of kind of photon counting is the, the spectral nature. And this is where, don't let any vendor fool you, photon counting, when it comes to this like spectral imaging, so we're talking about iodine maps, uh, monochromatic energy, etc. That is just giving us the same types of image presentation that we had with dual energy. And the verdict is still out and it's being actively researched if it's providing that information better. In fact, some evidence now in talking with researchers working on current, you know, FDA cleared products says it's got actually worse energy performance than some state-of-the-art dual energy scanners. In my mind, I categorize that and I'll stop here. High contrast space resolution, for sure, there's a, there's a measurable big increase. And we, we need to figure out clinically the impact. And then the second one is, yes, it's giving us what dual energy gave us today. Your iodine maps, monochromatic, 
effective atomic number, etc., that may be just as good as today's dual energy information or, or, or slightly worse, but that's kind of still being researched. How big are the file sizes compared to a conventional CT? From what I've read is that you get the spectral scanner, but then you also need to update your PAX infrastructure because you're going to have a, like a massive data sets. I don't think we talked too much about, or maybe, we, I, maybe I mentioned it a little bit, that radiologists might complain CTs becoming like MR. And I think like if we're going to go forward mm. and effectively, like unless you're planning to do research and you have a few more million dollars laying around and you want to play with a new toy then maybe you want to send around those big data files you're referring to to PACs. But if it's if photon counting and really dual energy is going to break out and, and just be standard clinical routine, I think as a community we should figure out what types of images, say, Ben needs for the heart and what types of images a neuroradiologist needs for the yeah. for a not regular non-con brain, etc. Personally, I'm not a radiologist, so you know I, I can't speak for them, but like it doesn't make sense to me that we really need on-the-fly information available for them to create any type of spectral you know image under the sun on packs so if you wanted to do that yeah then of course you need to send this bigger fatter file set up to your to your packs well lucky we have a radiologist here what's your take on this ben yeah radiologists always want more don't they and and they're always disappointed at the same time so i think that is probably a problem that you might have to face <laughs> uh, the, the costs are are pretty prohibitive for most hospitals, I guess, uh, with photon, uh, considering photon counting detector CTs. It's probably the last couple of years where I've gone to these cardiac conferences and they're, they're, you know, starting to push them now. I'm only aware of, I think, one in the UK at the moment, and it's still being used sort of you know, research and maybe very early clinical, um, and that may be vendor-specific. I'm not sure how, how the other ones are going. There's a perceived definite benefit uh, with cardiac imaging because you mem- remember we're imaging things, you know, coronary arteries that are maybe four or five millimeters at their largest in most people and maybe down to a millimeter. We know the benefits of cardiac CT. It's moved beyond stenosis by some margin and we're about plaque quantification yeah. in terms of volume. Uh, non-calcified versus calcified and then these high-risk plaque features because we know that these are the things that actually affect patient outcome and some of those things are beyond the resolution of uh, standard you know conventional uh, energy integrated detectors so that that notion is correct that maybe you do need to get that uh, extra information if you're going to affect uh, patient outcomes down the line and and again you get dazzled by these uh, amazing pictures that you see in conferences and particularly around you know calcific plaque uh, where you're going to get partial um, volume averaging stent imaging is a is a big thing that might come in the future yeah, more intervention they, love, they yeah. love showing the stent imaging so the, that nice thing. clean stent. and you you yeah. have these moments where you're like well that's that's not what my scanner looks like and you've got this massive envy mm. about it and it's like any sort of teaching or lecture you give, you show your best pictures, don't you? This is what my scans always look like. But you talk to the people doing this and they it's not necessarily the, the reality of every scan that they do and they do run into problems on patient-specific. So I think it's a great area to to be advancing in cardiac. I don't know about the other sort of applications as such. I don't know what you think, Tim. Is it five years, 10 years where it's going to be routine clinical application? 
Uh, are the costs for solid-state detectors going to come down to make it available? Are they going to just try and make us all buy one when it's really expensive and then wait another, like, 20 yeah. years or something? Uh, we can't tell the future, but I think it's a very fair assumption that the costs would come down. I'm not sure I've seen enough evidence for routine bread and butter imaging why I could ever advise a site that they needed photon counting today yet. For cardiac, I could easily see photon counting, you know, ma making a big impact. But I'd really like to yeah. see, you know, like a New England level type study where they, journalist type study where it's like, oh, because we had, you know, photon counting, like we could implement this better metric and make an actual impact in patient outcome. I think that's what I'd like to see before I could ever tell a site, yeah, you need to spend like $2 million more or whatever it is going to be, you know, US dollar on a on a photon counting scanner. But uh, yeah, bread and butter, I don't see a path today. I think some niche neuro applications, temporal bone, like coronary, then I, I could easily see, you know, within five years, the, the, the evidence being out there. Um, I mean, I'm sure the vendors think the evidence is there today to support purchasing one of their premium scanners. But still, I could never recommend that for, for bread and butter. So I think in countries like in the UK and others where they have, it's, a, you know, in the US... We can basically just kind of figure out, like in my hospital, like what we want to buy and go buy it. We don't have such a, um, a bidding tender yeah. process like in some parts of the world. So I don't know what extra kind of games have to be played to justify, you know, spending so much more money uh, on a scanner. That's about all we have time for today. So Ben, Tim, thanks for joining us and um, we'll see you all next time. So did you get your wish there, Gayla? Did they bag out vendors enough for you? <laughs> Look, I'm not some sort of aluminium hat-wearing anti-big pharma comtrail conspiracy <laughs> theorist, all right? <laughs> not anymore. I think the vendors are great. And they're at the very heart of, of why radiology has gone from just taking occasional x-rays to everything that we're doing now. But... The vendors are going to clip out that last little bit. Just that I think vendors are great. And then that's it. That's all they use. That's on the poster. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> but I think it is really important to tease out genuine innovation from... Gen genuine? What did you say? Genuine. <laughs> genuine? Okay. Yeah, that sounds better. Genuine? You want to go with that? I think so. I think so. I mean, words right. are important. You don't want it genuine on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really important to tease out genital technological innovation. <laughs> all right, all right. Genuine tech innovation, which I think photon counting is likely to be an example of that from marketing hype. And the importance, I think, of doing that is not just so that you get suckered into buying an expensive new toy that doesn't actually do anything different, mm. but because... If you do get suckered in and you don't dismiss trivial differences, then what you're creating is an incentive for vendors to focus on trivial differences rather mm. than focusing on the really important changes. Yeah. Uh, and that means being aware of the terminology and the technology that underlies it to know when you're talking about something genuine different. <laughs> 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 or if it's it's hype. And I think that talk was was really good at, at describing how some of these things are actually all the same 
and they're just using marketing glitz. Yeah, when you get an expert like Tim who doesn't have that loyalty to a particular brand and can cut through it all and just understands the physics and what's what's behind it all. It's good. Yeah, dual energy is a good example of what you're talking about there because at my hospital, it really hasn't progressed beyond the niche areas that those guys talked about. Mm. And it doesn't really justify you know getting a new scanner and the cost. Yeah. Has that been your experience as well? I mean, I think so. I don't do much CT anymore. So uh, to be honest, I don't know. I know we use it for vertebral body fractures to see whether there's an acute or, or chronic. Mm-hmm. I know we do it for, well, I think we do it for gout and we definitely do it for contrast staining versus hemorrhage following cerebral angiography, yeah. uh, which is really useful. And then the bit of virtual non-contrast imaging too, I think. Well, you can't go wrong with virtual, mate, like especially <laughs> virtual conferences. <laughs> uh, we do the same. and We don't do the vertebral body fracture one though. I always wonder how useful that is because often you'll have a fracture and then you'll do an MRI, you know, mm. on the same day or the second day. You can see the fracture on CT, you do the MRI, and the marrow edema is actually really, really minimal. It's actually sometimes hard to spot acute yeah, fractures. Yeah, I haven't had that many cases where I've thought, oh, this has really helped me. Yeah. It seems, again, like a solution looking for a problem, doesn't it? Rather than, you know, we're really struggling to spot fractures on CT. We really need dual energy to help us. Well, I think that's the thing with a lot of these um, new tools. And AI falls into this as well, where the thing that they claim to do might work really well if you consider that question generally. Mm. But in the subset where it's hard with existing tools, it also struggles. Yeah. You know, when it's obvious, then I don't care if AI can also spot the fracture because I don't need it. And when it's hard, that's when I want it. But that's not what the papers show you and certainly not what the companies tell you. They always give you the overall performance. And I I suspect that a lot of this dual energy is similar where it's particularly good at showing you things that you already know. We're going to get hate mail from all the dual energy supporters now. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else to chat about from this one? Well, I also found the conversation about interaction between radiologists and radiographers really interesting. And Mm. we've spoken about this before, I think, but the idea of hoarding knowledge is just rubbish. That idea of this is radiologist knowledge and you are a radiographer, therefore you should just do as I tell you Mm. uh, without understanding why, is short-sighted and protectionist for no good reason. Whereas I think if you take the time to teach and explain, or even just like we spoke about, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, just give a reason why you're doing it, even if it's not a great reason, it really helps you engage people in your workplace and everything is better in the future. And the amount of time that it takes you to explain is easily won back in future efficiencies. Absolutely. As an aside, I run into this problem it's not a problem. I'm the problem in this case. Uh, when we do feature development at That's Radiopedia. That's the first step, is admitting that you're the problem, Frank. <laughs> Congratulations. Baby steps, one step at a time. <laughs> 2024 is going to be a big year for you. It's big, big year. <laughs> but so we'll come up with a feature that I want Radiopedia to have and I'll create designs and mock-ups and explain how it will work and how it should look. And mm-hmm. then I give it to the developers to sort of put it in place. But if I don't also explain why we need this feature, what Mm -hmm. problems is this feature going to solve? How is it going to be used? Then often 
they will do as I told them, but it's rubbish because the way I've told them ignores all sorts of really important edge cases or, or aspects of how the usability will be affected that I haven't considered. Whereas if I take the time to explain the context, hmm. often I get pushback and the end result is much better. And I think the same is true when it comes to protocoling or scanning. And uh, as you said, it only often takes a couple of seconds to give that kind of context rather than saying to the radio effort, no, stop the scan there, we're done, we don't need to give contrast. Yeah. You know, like explaining to them what your reasoning is behind that decision means that they'll be better able to to predict what you're going to do in the future and know when to call you up and what questions to ask. Now, what did you think about the comment about standardizing protocols? I'm probably a little too relaxed myself and I'm pretty happy to report whatever sequences or phases come my way, but you're um, a bit more pedantic, <laughs> I imagine, and have very specific sequences you like included. Funnily enough, no. In fact, this is possibly one of the sources of conflict, well, not really conflict, but minor conflict that I have at work because I don't really fall into this idea that there is one true platonic protocol that we need to kind of strive to achieve that's, that's perfect. Mm. I think in retrospect, after you see the scan, you can imagine which sequences would have been really helpful. But yeah. predicting ahead of time is pretty hard and there's lots of different opinions. And I've much more of the throw some sequences at it. And as long as they're not really dumb, then it'll be fine. I mean, if you're looking for, you know, something to do with vessels, you probably need MRA in there. Mm. But exactly what kind of sequence and what slice thickness and orient, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't care. And I think I the advantage of being a bit more flexible is also you get less reliant on having to have exactly what you're used to. And you notice sometimes when a particular sequence is really helpful and maybe then it becomes more of a, a habit to include that one. I think it also helps avoid the inevitable bloat in the number of sequences you're performing, right? Because oh God, if yes. this person finds this sequence useful and this person finds this one, ultimately what you end up with is every sequence being performed every yeah. time. Whereas I much prefer the approach where you do your, your routine MRI brain with just your standard sequences and then you spot something and then you go, okay, now it would be appropriate to go on and do this other sequence rather than performing that every time. Yeah, that's interesting because I think there's two aspects to that that you're trying to balance. One is how much supervision does the scan need? And you could just sit in front of the scanner with the radiographers and look at each one and, and craft a bespoke protocol for each patient. And you see that in, in cardiac, particularly in some other complicated areas where you really struggle to have a generic protocol. Mm. But then you're only doing a, a dozen scans a day. And on the flip side is if you don't do enough sequences, then your recall rate will be too high. And so you need to balance those two out. But what I see a lot around town and when people talk about recall rates, they talk about it as if you would want your recall rate to be zero. And I think if you find a department that has a zero recall rate, either they're not calling people back that they should, or they're scanning way too much. Yeah. There is some the number of recall that's efficient, and that will depend on where patients live and how easy it is for them to get into your hospital. But you should be optimizing for the efficiency with which you can get people back for those additional sequences and have a number that you're aiming for, just like inflation. You know, you aim for 
2% inflation or whatever it is. Well, you should aim for some percentage of recall. And if you're too low, then you should cut more sequences out until mm. your recall rate goes up, until you reach that optimum level. I think there's also an argument sometimes that you need to be performing enough of a certain sequence in order to get your eye in for it. So if you're only performing sure. CSF flow studies in very, very tight number of circumstances, you might not have the overall experience in order to be able to interpret those ones when they come through. So if, you, if you're a bit more lenient in when you perform it, heard those arguments kind of given as well. So there is, there's obviously a balance. Yeah, and I think there is weight to that, particularly when it's a new sequence and you're not used to it. And I think CSF flow is is probably a good one because if you're not performing it on pretty much normal people, then you won't know what your normal values are going to be. Mm-hmm. And and that's I think that's actually a very good example because the values that are published in the literature and that people talk about, we did a, a set of control studies in just random, normal, young patients and elderly patients with no history of normal pressure hydrocephalus or anything. And the values were often higher than what the literature would talk about. And that was really helpful because then internally we knew that before we could say that this was hyperdynamic, we would be Mm. using values of like 150 rather than 80 or 100 that most people would talk about, let alone 42 from that paper from 1902. (laughs) Well, we better wrap this uh, this discussion up. I just wanted to uh, thank Andrew Murphy in particular mm. for organising that panel discussion at Radiopedia 2023, and he's back as one of the co-conveners for Radiopedia 2024, and it's great having that, that radiographer perspective at our meeting. Absolutely. Uh, Frank, how can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback. Mm -hmm. Do you want goat-related merchandise? Let us know. (laughs) Fire goat. Everyone wants it, I'm sure. We might be able to organize that by 2027. (laughs) I think, look, if we just order an initial print run of, what, 10,000, we should be fine. We'll be able to get rid of that. Purple goat (laughs) pajamas. Yeah. (laughs) And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our entire online course collection and our annual virtual conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 Mm -hmm. low and middle income countries. And, And what else can people do to help us out, Frank? And you can also help out by leaving us a five-star oh, review. 2024 has already beaten you down. If you're choosing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's terrible. We should ask for some one-star reviews. No, don't. You can't do that. Can't do They're that. not funny. <laughs> they keep talking about radiology. <laughs> or not talking or about not. radiology. <laughs> all right. And we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. Stay right. New Year's resolution complete. Get better at podcasting. Tick, Gayla. (laughs) 